Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome Betsy Leach to the podcast. Betsy is a teacher in the elementary education program. She has taught in public education for the past 10 years and specializes in multicultural education, community engagement, and inclusivity. Thank you for coming to speak with me, and how are you today? I'm well. How are you, David? I'm pretty good. So, I'm curious, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you find your way to Naropa? How did you find your way into this position? And maybe even how did you find your way into teaching in education? Mm, it's a big one, but so I guess I'll start at the beginning. Okay. I I realized I wanted to be a teacher late in college. So I was in school at Oberlin College in Ohio and very uninspired by my politics classes and happened luckily to take a class called Education in the Black Community Mm -hmm. where my professor really made the connection for me between education and social justice. I went to a very unusual Quaker boarding school for middle school and high school where I had the privilege of learning about white privilege, racism, inequity, uh, social justice, pacifist movements since the sixth grade. And so for me, social justice (laughs) was the thing. It felt like a, a responsibility. It felt like a civic duty. And just, you know, what felt important to me about being human. And so I naively became a politics major in college and then never felt inspired or connected in those courses. And so when I took this class, Education in the Black Community, I took it because it had a practicum component. Mm -hmm. And so you were paired with students in the local elementary schools so that while you are critiquing and studying the education system and how education can be used as a means of creating more equity and justice in the world, you're also working with kids. And so I wow, loved that I love piece. That, <laughs> that piece so was hopeful good. while you're learning yeah. about all the injustice that is the reality, but you're working with these phenomenal kids at the same time. Mm. So that was my, that's how I came to teaching. And then I was recruited by Teach for America, who it, the organization allowed me to write out of college since I was not an education major, mm-hmm. allowed me to spend a summer training and then go right into teaching, which I feel very grateful for because I learned more from my students those first two years than yeah. from Teach for America or from my college yeah. experience. In the field experience. In the field. Yep. And I personally, since you know, since experiencing Teach for America and having furthered my education about education, I have some critiques about the program. But what I will say is that it was an invaluable experience for me to work with students who really pushed me to become as excellent as a teacher as I could be as quickly as possible because they were so inspiring. What age were you teaching in? 
High school. High school. So I started out high school Spanish. All right. And I've always loved teenagers. I've always been drawn to that age group because you can be yourself in the sense that you can always be yourself with kids, but you can Mm. really bring your sarcasm and your sense of humor and your eccentric personality. (laughs) And so I felt like high school really allowed me to have that rapport with students that feels natural to me. Cool. Yeah. So that was an amazing experience. Does sarcasm and bringing some fun characteristics to the classroom, does that enhance the classroom experience? Does that create bonds with students? Does that allow people to show up a little bit differently and just enjoy the education? I think so. Okay. I My experience with students has always been that when they feel like you're real, like you're being genuine yeah. rather than pretending to be some perfect authority figure okay. above them, okay. they trust you <laughs> and they're willing. So I had students, you know, telling other students, you got to be good for Ms. Leach because, you know, she, she keeps it real and she's going to, okay. you know, have your back. And so... That to me was huge, especially going into teaching at 22 with only a summer of training. Mm-hmm. It, I think, was really important to bring that humility also and not yeah. pretend to know more than I did and to be really transparent with students when, <clears throat> when I had a bad day where my lesson was not engaging okay. and say – that wasn't as awesome as I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. What would you? What could I have done wow. better? What you know? Constantly asking for feedback and just letting them know I care. I'm not always yeah. going to be the best teacher, so please let me know what you need. I don't even think I've ever had a teacher in my public education experiences where they were wanting critiques. Right. What is it like getting critiques from students? What kind of critiques do you get? And they're like, "You're horrible," <laughs> or like, "Oh my god, I love this class." I like this topic a lot. Let's uh, emphasize this a bit more. Like what kind of feedback do you get? Well, I have to say my students those first two years were incredibly generous with me. <laughs> they <All right. laughs> and and that's not because I was You weren't amazing. too far off being a teenager yourself. <laughs> right. And so I because I was teaching in a school where unfortunately it was classified as a failing school, which we have to be really careful about the way we classify public schools. That often okay. is a label get, that gets placed on schools that do not have a lot of resources. and So that's how they label it failing if they don't have resources or money's not coming in? or If they don't have resources and students are performing poorly okay. on standardized tests. So that's mm-hmm. a whole gigantic topic, yeah. but... Often we see (laughs) test scores and the immediate response, and this includes me back in the day in Teach for America, thought, oh, the school is failing, therefore the teachers must be failing. You know, Mm. it just seemed like, oh, trust that data, that we have to fix that, that's the goal. And we certainly have to ensure that every single student is achieving. However, over my 10 years teaching, I've come to have a very critical lens of the measures we're using to determine achievement. So if we're purely looking at standardized tests, mm-hmm. which are already have an ethnocentric bias yeah. and which measure a very limited set of skills mm-hmm. that don't really measure critical thinking, creativity, innovation, we have to be curious about labeling schools failing. Okay, so students aren't scoring well on these ethnocentric standardized tests. Yeah. And the schools definitely need improvement, but that to me is a question of resources, not a question of seeing the problem in the students or necessarily in the teachers. Sometimes yeah. it's it's within the teachers and sometimes not. Interesting. So that's 
a tangent there, mm-hmm. but I That's meant- an interesting tangent. I almost want to like go there. We can go there too. All right. I mean, I have a question about yeah. that. I'm, I'm curious, like when it comes to an idea of a failing school or just a school that's not performing up to the standardized testing scores or whatever, I mean, essentially it's probably not the students and maybe it's not the teachers. It, it's probably like the environment. It might be the curriculum. It might be so many different other factors that we don't even investigate or even dive into. We don't even look into right. the, the school board comes over to you to the, your school and says, here you go, make sure they're following all these things. And then when you do that test, on the school, you're like, okay, well, maybe they're not following this all right, but maybe that test is kind of rigged to make it look like you're failing, right? And not how you're saying it. creativity, innovation, all these like different things that the kids could be super inspired and be leaders in different worlds, but we're not allowing that to sh- be showcased. Exactly, and so it, it's such a complex. I mean, the achievement gap which I prefer when scholars use the term opportunity gap because it's so complex, but I prefer opportunity gap because it's taking a look at the gap in resources and opportunities that different students have rather than a deficit that the students are producing, right? Which is that achievement. Interesting. And so it, it is so complex, but I think that's, these are the conversations I'm having with my students in, in courses now, these, these mm-hmm. students who are going to be future educators, is really critiquing the way our system is designed big picture as well as how do you teach an engaging yeah. lesson because so often the schools that already start out with fewer opportunities and resources in mm-hmm. communities with fewer opportunities and resources yeah. are the ones that then get labeled as failing yeah. and therefore closed down or all mm. the teachers are fired. Whereas a school that's in an affluent neighborhood, potentially because of the privilege that many of those students bring, they're going to do fine on the standardized test scores. Not great, but fine on the whitewashed standardized test scores. Mm -hmm. And so those schools are allowed to thrive and they're given more resources and quality teachers are drawn to those schools. And so it's just actually widening the gap by penalizing so-called failing schools because of test scores yeah. alone, essentially. Ooh. And that's not to say that there aren't many ways of, of improving schools that are in low-income communities, yeah. but it's not about improving the students, right? It's about improving the inequity in our political, yeah. economic, yeah. education systems wow. to me. And so, so that was very interesting. You know, being a part of Teacher America where the national dialogue tends to see the problem as being within teachers, oh, therefore we need to get all these young kids from Ivy League schools into the public schools. That's essentially the mission of Teach for America Mm -hmm. in order to achieve educational equity. The An unintended consequence of that was that many teachers from the communities – where they were teaching ended up getting fired. And those are teachers who have bonds with parents, with students. They understand the community. And we're just throwing in these newbie white teachers into those schools. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly problematic. Wow. Unrelatable. Yes, unrelatable. And it was very upsetting to me to watch many of my Teach for America um, colleagues go in with this vision of social justice and because they could not connect with students and it was so hard, they began shifting the blame onto the students. 
and mm. starting to say things like these kids don't care about school, right? These parents don't care about their kids' education, and they start to to put all these deficits within students rather wow. than seeing that they are yeah. unprepared yeah. to teach. And Where's so that was that painful. internal critique coming from? Right. Is that like an ego-based thing? And that's sad it comes to that. So when you're speaking of uh, lack of resources, yeah. what does lack of resources actually mean? Hmm. So this first school that I worked in, you know, you were supplying your own copy paper. You, what? Yeah, there were there oh. were blackboards um, and, you know, projectors on desks oh. rather than uh-huh. when I later worked <clears throat> in an affluent middle class, mostly white school. We all had smart boards and mm-hmm. I never bought my own copy paper, right? It's just a, a very different ask of teachers. Yeah. If you want to give your student, I mean, if you wanted to bring art into your curriculum, you'd be buying all of that yourself. And then in terms of teacher resources, that very much depends on the school. But there were many in the first school that I worked at, there were many teachers that would put on the Rugrats, you know, Nickelodeon TV show if they didn't feel like teaching that day. So students would sometimes come to my class and say, Hmm. oh, this is the first time I've had to use a pencil today. And it was the last period of the day. And so a system... All right. And they, that's tricky because it's sounding like I'm blaming the teachers now. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. But ultimately, the system that asks teachers for very little pay to also be buying your own supplies and then giving no support in terms of culturally responsive mm-hmm. curriculum, not yeah. giving the right professional development, teachers get burnt out, teachers get jaded. So it's this cycle mm-hmm. that is very hard to break as one teacher within a big public school. Yeah. I have this little idea where it's, it's easy to be lazy. It's mm-hmm. like super easy to not care, to not do anything, to be lazy and just kick back. And it's kind of hard to be inspired and to move forward and do all that. But it's, it's most hardest to transition between the two. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to transition from being lazy to being inspired. Like that middle point is where I find it the most difficult, but that's where the real work is done. And it kind of feels like the school, the teachers, the students, the parents, they all need to kind of like shift together. And we also need to pair teachers with the right sort of education systems. People who work in the communities need to be with the communities. Exactly. Because that's where the real good stuff is. Exactly. You know, because then you know everyone. You can actually like speak to them from your heart. Right. And they can feel you and be like, wow, maybe you're right. Right, right. You You can relate to my experience. You understand. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that I think so much what happens is that we know all students want to learn. All students come to school excited to learn. Yeah. All parents care that their students get a good education. Definitely. And I would say that most teachers, if not all teachers, get into teaching because they're inspired and want to teach. So you mm-hmm. you, ha- you have all these people, students, parents, teachers, coming to schools inspired, wanting yeah. to teach and yeah. learn. <laughs> so therefore, when that starts to not happen, when we see students mm-hmm. appear to be unmotivated, we need to ask the question, why? Yeah. Clearly what we are teaching and the way in which we're teaching is not does not feel relevant, does not feel inspiring. Mm-hmm. The feedback, to go back to feedback, when you asked me about that, a lot of the feedback that has taught me so much from students is about the education system feeling oppressive. And many teachers forms of teaching feeling oppressive and okay. curriculum feeling alienating mm. because the curriculum does not include them. The curriculum does not include their history. Wow. Sometimes it will blatantly say, for example, a, a lesson about the first the first people in Texas. 
And the people that the textbook is referring to are the white people, settlers, who moved westward. Who wrote that book? I don't know. To be honest, I don't teach using that textbook clearly. But that great book for anyone to read is Lies My Teacher Told Me because his last name is Lowen, the author of that book. He surveyed the majority of the most used textbooks in the U.S. for the past decades. And that, that is not one anecdote that is when I refer to ethnocentric whitewashed curriculum Mm -hmm. that's not my opinion that is if you look at the textbooks and you compare it with the actual history there are either whole pieces of history are either left out or glossed over Mm -hmm. or sometimes changed so that we paint this picture of this happy melting pot positive triumphant U.S. history rather than acknowledging the genocide Slavery, wow! So continued much is lost. inequity. Because yeah. you know, students can never examine why inequity exists, right? Why some schools are failing. There's no ability to analyze that if you aren't getting mm-hmm. the full history, real history, right? Jeez. You're just getting this one slice. So students would say that they know that, right? So one form of great critical thinking and resistance is to say, I'm not going to learn a history that marginalizes my people, that lies to me about Mm -hmm. this history, nor am I going to learn from teachers who clearly, whether they say it blatantly or not, think that I don't care and think less of me, right? That have all this unconscious bias about me as a student. Wow, that goes deep. Yeah. Yeah. Some things going on there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so I had students also, this was later at a school in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. in terms of feedback. I'm so grateful that because I brought that humility saying, let me know when things are not working. Yeah. Students were very transparent with me and said, these rules feel dehumanizing. It feels like our teachers don't understand us. It feels like they're scared of us, right? Mm-hmm. These are all black and Latino students mm-hmm. and majority white teachers. So they see it all. They see the cultural disconnect. They see the unconscious bias. They see that the way the school was designed did not believe the best about them. And then they had great ideas. Here's they drew a Venn diagram. Here's how this school is like a prison. Oh, <laughs> here's our vision. We still want rules. Rules are important. Yeah, we want them to have a rationale. So I've just found that students are always the best teachers. Students know what they need. Students are hungry to learn. Yep. But they want to learn the real history. They want to learn real life. They want to learn things that are relevant to their real lives. I would assume most people want to learn the realness. <laughs> right. You know because. Right. What kind of life is it if you're learning not real? Right. I don't right. know. There's no engagement there, right? Why <laughs> no. would that? Why would I no. engage with that? Right. All right. So you spoke a little bit about this. I'd love to switch yeah. gears. So yeah. you taught a lot in multicultural settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that actually mean? I like. I sort of have an idea, but yeah. I'm just kind of curious from your point of view as an educator. Like, yeah. what does that mean to teach in a multicultural setting? And what does it mean to have like mixed cultures in a classroom? Like, yeah. how do you teach in such a setting? Well, it's interesting. So my first school was not very multicultural, actually. It was, I would say, 80% of students were black and 20% of students were Latino. So certainly there were two cultures within the school, two Mm -hmm. races within the school. But often I think we use the term multicultural to mean black and brown students. When really, Mm -hmm. to me, multicultural means 
a very diverse group of students, yeah. which requires black, brown, Asian, white, right? Mm-hmm. A truly multicultural yeah. classroom. You get the full, the full like spectrum. cran box. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have taught throughout my 10 years. I have taught in settings that were majority black and brown, and I've taught in settings that are majority white. Mm -hmm. And so that has been very enlightening and upsetting to see the difference in terms of what, how teachers are trained to teach black and brown students versus how teachers are trained to teach white students and what's emphasized. For me, it was classroom management and control and keeping students in their seats as much as possible was emphasized when I was teaching black and brown students. Because that's how the school gets paid, right? Attendance. Is attendance, yeah. And Mm -hmm. that to me just speaks to the racism and fear that's embedded in our system and within people is that you think that black and brown students need to be controlled. Yeah. Versus white students, when I was training at that school, I was taught that students should be moving within every lesson. They should be up out of their seats, that we should be teaching critical thinking. I was given all of this actual pedagogy about how students learn Mm -hmm. and techniques that I had never received prior. So to me, that speaks volumes about, first of all, why we're seeing gaps in achievement, and second, what we believe in our systems about students of different races. And that's what has led me to multicultural education, which is about, it's a pedagogy that is about liberation and about recognizing bias and examining it and talking openly with students so that we're creating young people Mm -hmm. who know how to talk about racism, sexism, homophobia, bias, and they are learning about all of that, which is real life. The curriculum is connected with that. So it's not this sort of disconnected, isolated unit on westward expansion. Mm -hmm. You're learning a unit, it might be called invasion from the east, because westward expansion is teaching that from the perspective of the white settlers who moved west yeah. and and murdered many Native Americans and stole their land, yep. right? So multicultural education, what it seeks to do is to ensure that history, math, English is being taught from multiple perspectives. So students are not getting one slice, one ethnocentric slice. Mm-hmm. They're able to hear from multiple perspectives and then use yeah. critical thinking to analyze Ooh. their world. It's almost like they're scared to say non-white classrooms. Right. So they call them multicultural classrooms right. instead. Right. Wow. And I think there's also this misperception that we need multicultural education and culturally responsive pedagogy for black and brown students, it's for those students. And to me, that misses the point. Multicultural education is for everybody, definitely yeah. white students as well, because yeah. white students receiving this whitewash curriculum are also being blinded to the actual reality. Doesn't serve and unable us to, to learn exactly. that. Yeah. Exactly, that's how bias gets perpetuated mm-hmm. and instilled in us. Yeah, we need a non-judgmental point of reference for everyone to learn the same stuff and to be taught critical thinking at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, just engage the brain. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Right. Engage the brain, engage right. the heart. Right. And you almost had some sort of like contemplative aspect to all-inclusive, mm-hmm. bringing it all in. Mm-hmm. And I, and I kind of dig that. Yeah, that's what excites me mm-hmm. now about being at Naropa is to me, this is the teaching program that I wish I had had. Yeah. It took me 10 years <laughs> to learn all of this, mm-hmm. right, through struggles and realizing that I had been teaching in a damaging way and having to hear that from students and really struggle with that and grapple with that and seek out through books and further study. Mm. There was no program 
that I knew of that allowed me to learn multicultural critical pedagogy along with getting your teacher licensure and receive that contemplative training as well. Yeah. As far as I know, okay. we're the first program, teacher licensure program in the country to be training students in contemplative competencies that they can use mm-hmm. as teachers and also bring to their students. Yeah. So to me, it's all, yeah. you need all of that. Everyone wins. Yay. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's what we want. Yes. We just want to give the knowledge out. Right. There's no reason why we shouldn't be. It's everyone's. Right. This is for everyone. Yeah. So you work at Naropa University. Yeah. You said it took you 10 years to get here. Yeah. I'm curious, what is it you actually do? Well, like, tell me a little bit about your job, how you move with the students and how sure. you show up. Well, so it's the first official year of the program, which is very exciting. And so we have a cohort of students right now who are both in education courses Mm -hmm. to earn their major in elementary education and teacher licensure. And they're also in practicum sites, meaning they're out in public schools observing and assisting teachers for every single education course. So that's what makes our program really unique. They're in schools right off the bat their first year. Mm -hmm. Contemplative competencies like mindful awareness, embodied listening, compassion practices are woven into every single education course. And all students- Did you just say compassion? Compassion. In education? What? Isn't that wild? The fact that that's not an (laughs) integral part of every teacher training program is mind boggling. But it's now becoming huge. You know, now teachers, current teachers are hungry for mindfulness training. So we're Mm. trying to give students that training, you know, as they're learning to become Classroom management, compassion training. Precisely. If we we viewed classroom management as about being able to be compassionate with students and see what they need, it would look very differently yeah. than, than most. It's amazing how you treat each other when you can understand where you're coming from. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> cool. So, Sorry. I didn't mean to derail you. No, that always derail me. <laughs> that's what the most fun. So the contemplative competencies are in every class. And mm-hmm. then every single student that graduates with the teacher licensure also earns their culturally, linguistically diverse endorsement which is a mouthful that's essentially that you know how to teach all students. So Naropa, we don't believe that that in many um, settings, that's an add-on. Students graduate, become teachers, and then you can go back to school and receive an endorsement. That to me gets at our view of- Wait a minute, you should be learning to teach everyone right. That should be the starting point. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So we don't have a couple classes that are about teaching culturally and linguistically diverse students. Those standards are woven into every single education course. That's the lens. You're looking at what's going to work for all students. And often it's not the same thing. So it's Mm -hmm. really about learning how to differentiate for students, how to Mm -hmm. build on students' personal experiences on, on their cultural funds of knowledge and that's a skill that then allows you to go out and teach all kids and connect with all kids rather than learning this one way and then going out and finding that that doesn't work for all students it's not fun to go out in the field and learn it what you've learned doesn't work Right. And so many teachers, we have huge teacher shortages in part because of low teacher pay and in part because teacher training programs aren't giving teachers the full range of skills, right? That interpersonal skill, that personal and interpersonal skill of mindfulness, right? Or contemplative relationship, the culturally, linguistically diverse pedagogy. They're not getting those two key components of being an excellent teacher and being able to sustain 
that practice. Wow. So complex. It is. It is. So much going on. I really see what you're saying here where it's we need to learn how to teach everyone right from the start. Mm -hmm. And the compassion training is a really good key in learning how to change our learning style if Mm -hmm. the classroom shows up differently. So learning with the students and maybe even learning from the students. Exactly. Never not learning. Exactly. You know, being a teacher and a student at the same time. Because the classes are, they're like this thing that just kind of shows you like in a little amoeba that is just showing you what they need in the moment right and you have to be able to to deliver that right and you also have to have a humbleness to be like i'm not doing it right 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 (laughs) maybe i should shift or no it's all their fault you know like this is how i was taught to do it right like uh, maybe not Right. And that contemplative lens allows you to see often when teachers see a student that are misbehaving, quote unquote, in class or who are refusing to do the work, mm-hmm. the gut response is, oh, that student doesn't care or, oh, that student doesn't get it. You know, there are a lot of sort of judgments that throw a label happen. at you now. Yeah. You know, you're fitting this category. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's an unmotivated student. That's a disengaged student rather than the way I always <clears throat> viewed it as a teacher is, oh, that student's giving me information. Mm-hmm. Maybe what I'm teaching is not engaging. Maybe it doesn't feel relevant. Maybe there's something going on in that student's life that yeah. I should be curious about and, and understand. Right. Yep. So that piece to me feels hugely important. And for years, I've also done a lot of professional development trainings around unconscious bias because people often want to learn how to be a culturally responsive teacher, but doing that inner work of looking at where your bias lies, because we all have unconscious bias. We've been socialized that way. As I mentioned, Mm -hmm. textbooks is just one way that we're Mm -hmm. socialized. So that inner work is difficult. And often I would get asked by current educators, okay, so I'm in, I want to be more aware of my unconscious bias. How do I do that? And I have various activities that I will lead them through to help them with that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what I was realizing is if you don't have some sort of mindfulness practice, it doesn't have to be meditation, but some form of contemplative practice where you're practicing awareness, it's really hard (laughs) to be aware of your unconscious bias because Mm -hmm. it's unconscious. And so that's something I love modeling with my current Naropa students Mm -hmm. because they're hungry for that. They're ready to do that hard work is modeling. Oh, here's a biased thought that I caught the other day. I think because of my mindfulness practice and here's how I work to not enact that and we can go there yeah yeah how does the conscious mind snag the unconscious mind and then when you do you're like yeah right i found one right exactly oh wow i don't like that one exactly and now let me bring compassion to myself and avoid (laughs) enacting it ever again yeah and then you kind of wonder you're just like that's me saying that and that doesn't feel like who i am i should be or who i am so hmm, er, i gotta do that work exactly okay yeah. Interesting. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So I understand that you have a couple organizations that you found. I'd love to speak about that or just kind of hear your experience with moving forward with those and how they function, how they sure. were created. Yeah, I suppose they're all organizations. These were all – so during my public school teaching years – I always, first and foremost, what I cared about was relationships with my students and making sure that there nice. was there were happy, engaged learners mm-hmm. in my classroom. Yay. <laughs> right? I want to go to your class. <laughs> that's, what, that's the goal. Fun. And Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who oh. is, okay. she inspires me. She is the first ordained 
black Zen priest. Yep. She talks about her organization is Radical Dharma. She's she's a scholar and teacher around racism, sexism. Yeah. She's transformative. And so she has this great quote that says, love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. And without collective change, no change matters. Uh, And that, to me, is everything. (laughs) And so there's always been that part of me as Mm -hmm. I became more and more familiar with the system that wanted to be contributing to systemic change as well, not just within my classroom, but actually impacting the system for equity. And so that's how... I began starting these student groups and organizations. So most recently, I founded a Latino student union at a school that was largely white. And so the Latino student population felt very unseen in many ways. They experienced a lot of unconscious bias, whether from teachers or students, and there was no outlet to talk about that. There was no outlet to, again, students know what they need. So they wanted culturally responsive teaching. They wanted leadership opportunities. They wanted to address. Yeah, we all want it. (laughs) Give it to us. Right, and they know what they want. And so the idea was that this Latino Student Union would be a place, A, where students could have this space to connect around this shared experience, both, you know, just the beautiful cultural experiences that they all share and the bias that they experience in this school, Mm -hmm. and then get involved in the community, in leadership. So students would present with me to the entire faculty around unconscious bias that they experienced and about what they wanted and the pressure they felt being bicultural. Wow, that's powerful. So it was the students really, it was a student-run organization, and I was just grateful to be, you know, facilitating and supporting, and, and the students really made it into what it became, which had a huge impact on staff development and, and you know, the students advocated for themselves, themselves to wear cords at graduation that represented the Latino Student Union. So really just feeling mm-hmm. like they had a presence at the school. Oh, that's awesome. So that was one piece. And then the other piece was a Spanish-speaking parent coalition. Mm-hmm. So I saw the need where we had one Spanish-speaking family liaison at the school who could never translate everything and who that was only part of her just job. Just because it was too much? Just because it was too much for one okay. person. And she she was doing a phenomenal job, mm-hmm. but I would hear from people at the school, you know, we can't get our Latino parents to come to school, to come to conferences, to come to our college nights. And teachers very much wanted every parent to feel included and involved. And so... That's where community engagement, really understanding a culturally responsive method Mm -hmm. of community engagement is key. And so I was able to work with Richard Garcia and the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition. Mm -hmm. And so Richard Garcia came in and trained um, myself, another teacher, our principal, and a group of Spanish-speaking parents very intensively over a period of months in this inclusive parent leadership model. And so that group of parents, then it was very much a two-way learning group where we were kind of letting parents know, here's how this school system works. Here's how this school works. Here's how you can navigate the system. And parents were teaching us 
this is what my students need. This is where I Mm -hmm. see teachers failing my students. You know, this is why communication doesn't work for us. And so really looking at that system level change. Education is a collaboration between parents, students, teachers, and the like just everyone coming together and just learning information. But the information has to have this moment of clarity. You can't convolute it with biases and washed out histories right you gotta show them the real stuff yeah and then they can use their mind to decide what that means to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. wow okay yeah. so we only have a little minute left or two and i'm just curious like do you have any last words if you could inspire people who are thinking about teaching in multicultural settings and or just teaching in general or information to be like, you know, stick with it, you can do it, or this worked for me, or just anything that you'd want to say? Yeah, well, for anyone considering teaching, I can only say that it's been the most fulfilling, uh, life-sustaining profession that I could have ever imagined. Okay. Oh, that's so fun to hear. The the ability to be interacting with people all day instead Mm -hmm. of sitting at a desk and to be learning from all different perspectives. Sounds like a lot of excitement. It's so much fun and (laughs) just very, very worthwhile and important. We need it. I'll also give a shout out to the current cohort of future education majors. They Shout out to you. Are, they're <laughs> fabulous. They are curious, yeah. engaged, critical thinkers, mm. willing to do the hard work of examining themselves. I'm just very impressed by what they bring each day to class. Great. And so that is what's inspiring me currently about the future of education is seeing the products that they're coming with and the questions they're coming with, preparing themselves to go yeah. out and be contemplative, culturally responsive educators. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. There's there's so much that I'm learning too about the the gaps and how teachers show up to different style of communities and mm-hmm. the pairing of students and teachers and the pairing of communities and parents mm-hmm. and education practices. And mm-hmm. there's so much there that might need to be looked at. And it seems as though you're doing that work and you're willing to take the feedback from the students and Mm -hmm. take the feedback from other educators that you work with and to go deeper into the craft of teaching and relatability and showing them that education is a platform to empower oneself. Yes. And so I just want to like throw some appreciation your way. So thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences. It's been a pleasure, David. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So that was Bessie Leach on the podcast. She is the elementary education program and has taught in public education for the last 10 years, specializing in multicultural education and community engagement. So thank you again. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.